What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to I'm going to walk through the book of Revelation in just a moment and give you the chronological unfolding of it. And it's just going to be the one time. I'm not teaching Revelation as such. I'm going to teach portions from Revelation. But I'm not going to teach the whole book, but I'm going to give you the overall big view of it. But I want to focus on the last chapter dealing with the last event before Jesus Christ comes back. And that's dealing with Babylon the literal city of Babylon. You might think that Babylon has been destroyed. Chapter 5, the book of Daniel. No, the city of Babylon was not destroyed in chapter 5. The Babylonian empire was destroyed. Babylon, the city, has never been destroyed If you read the book of Ezra, you can see that Ezra the prophet, the scribe, also was living in Babylon. That's chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. He left Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. And that's a period of time, 75 years after the temple had been rebuilt. If you read over in secular history, Alexander the Great, I told you this morning, was headquartered in the literal city of Babylon with the Grecian Empire. That's five, excuse me, 300 years after the fall of the Babylonian Empire. You can read in the book of 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, the apostle Peter started a church in Babylon. He says, all the saints in the church in Babylon salute you. In Peter's day, he was following the commands of Jesus. He was going to start churches in the uttermost parts of the world. Babylon at that time was the second most populated Jewish city in the world, second only to Jerusalem. And so Peter starts a church in Babylon. By the way, Peter never went to Rome. He went to Babylon. And so Babylon's never been destroyed. Isaiah 13 and 14, Jeremiah 50 and 51 says Babylon has to be destroyed. I want to show you a short four-minute video produced by the New York Times. I want you to notice what they are reporting. This is not a prophecy paper. This is the New York Times. They're reporting that they are in the process in a project to rebuild the city of Babylon. I want you to watch this, and then I'll teach from the Word of God. It's been seven years since the war began in Iraq, and for the first time, you're beginning to see work again in places like Babylon behind me and other other archaeological sites around the country. Babylon, the ancient capital of King Nebuchadnezzar, is easily the most famous of Iraq's historic sites. Over the millennia, it has suffered damage from time and nature and from Saddam-era reconstruction in the 1980s that put new walls and palaces on top of the old ruins. See exactly the line between uh, uh, the original wall and the part rebuilt or reconstructed. The original wall the and the refurbished wall. More recently, wall. the damage from coalition forces who dug trenches while using it as a base after 2003. As workers begin refurbishing the museum and a replica of Ishtar Gate, a much harder task is to stop things getting worse. Only then can they start making them better. What you need first to do is to create uh, documentation to understand what's 
wrong and what are the problems with the monument. Look at this. This is all modern masonry. All this back here. The World Monuments Fund completed a survey and last month received $2 million from the United States government to begin restoration work. In this guidebook from the 1980s, we have a picture before the restoration work during the Saddam period. And so what you see in the background here are the reconstructed uh, bays or, and crenellations of the processional way as envisioned by the people uh, within the Antiquities Department in the 1980s. Fundamentally, how many of the problems you face are man-made and how many are natural? Well, I think that if we just had to deal with one or the other, it would be fine. But the two together is nearly toxic for the preservation of monuments. This is the Tower of Babylon, the Ziggurat Temple Tower of Babylon, which is the foundation for the Tower to be of Babylon. The tower that the exiled Hebrews were thinking about uh, in Babylon when the, when they were telling, retelling the story of a great tower from their own past. In the center ground here, just past the water, the mud brick core, which is, if you look in an aerial view, if you fly over it, it's a square. And then the trench beyond it is the area where the foundations were, as far as I can tell, uh, which were of baked brick. And so they were mined away by uh, people who were building houses in historical times. You can see modern building fabric that was an effort in the 1980s by Saddam Hussein to conserve and to reconstruct the site. Like this, some parts of bricks. I think water's getting in there too. You could go to the Saddam Palace and see a lot of graffiti from the various forces which occupied the site in recent history. Today the palace lies in ruins, looted and pillaged of anything of value. The site management plan will guide the future of Babylon. The stakeholders ranging from the government of Babel to the SBAH to local residents living next to the site, they all have a stake in this, conserving such an important site as well as benefiting from it. Iraqi officials want more visitors at places like Babylon. They hope to make it a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That may mean undoing some of Saddam Hussein's renovations in the 1980s. Uh, uh, the fundamental point is the authenticity and the integrity of the monument in Babylon. So we are obliged in the conservation plan to remove part of the, the buildings which was uh, reconstructed and restored in 1980. The work at these sites has only just begun, and no one thinks it'll be easy. Past precedents in Iraq would suggest that it's difficult to predict and say, we will do this in five years or that in 10 years. Uh, to do that would be somewhat naive. At the same time, we're going to try our best with the circumstances given us. It helped them put the pieces together towards developing a future way of preserving and presenting the site but the development of Babylon as a tourist site is going to be a very important part of Iraq's economic welfare in the future. We're going to see a lot of visitors passing this way. Here is last statement. We're going to see a lot of visitors passing this way. And Babylon will be a major component in the rebuilding of Iraq, the war-torn nation of Iraq.
Babylon is located today 58 miles out of downtown Baghdad. You saw Saddam Hussein there. He spent a half a billion, $500 million for the purpose of trying to refurbish Babylon. He built his own palace. You saw that, how they have basically uh, almost desolated that place. But uh, Babylon has never been destroyed. The prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah have never been fulfilled. The word Babylon is used 351 times in the entire scripture. It's used some six times in the book of Revelation. We'll look at them in just a moment. But if you will, let me go to the book of Revelation because I want to set the tone and help you understand how Revelation unfolds. It is key to understanding Bible prophecy because the book of Revelation is the final book of prophecy that lays out the end time scenario for all of us to understand. I'm going to walk through chronologically just a moment from now the book of Revelation. Let me make this statement. You cannot understand the book of Revelation if you study it numerically. What I mean by that, if you start studying Revelation and go from chapters 1 to 22, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way numerically, you'll never understand it. You have to study the book of Revelation chronologically in order to be able to understand it. And that's why we put our materials out so you can do that. Just let me introduce Revelation a moment with you, if you will. Go to Revelation chapter 1, and let me just show you something. First of all, the title of this book is not what you find maybe up in your title section of your Bible. I have a title. I have a King James Bible. And the title of my book here is The Revelation of St. John the Divine. Now, I don't know what the title of your book says, but mine is incorrect. This is not a book that was written by St. John the Divine. He was not divine. St. John was a saint only because he trusted Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, but he was not divine. He was not a God. So my title is incorrect. By the way, it's not a revelation of St. John either. The title of the book is found in chapter 1 and verse 1. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the title of the book, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. This book lifts up Jesus Christ. Chapter 19 and verse 10 says, Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And that's what the book of Revelation does. It reveals the person, the power, and the program of Jesus Christ. By the way, the book is also not entitled Revelations. <laughs> If I stand at the back door and you come out and I shake your hand and you tell me, oh, Brother Jimmy, I love to hear you teach the book of Revelations, I'm going to hit you with my Bible because this is not the book of Revelations. It's one revelation of one person, Jesus Christ. That's the book. Now look at the first verse again, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's who it came from. God gave unto him, unto Jesus Christ, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he, Jesus Christ, sent and signified it by his angels. Jesus Christ had an angel he delegated to give it to John the Revelator. And John the Revelator penned the words of this book so you and I could have this prophecy to study through and come to an understanding of. By the way, Angel, that word used in chapter 1 and verse 1, 
is the most used word in the entire book of Revelation. It's used 81 times. Angel, or it's plural, angels. And you will see as you study through the book, seven angels deliver seven trumpet judgments. That's in chapters 8, 9, and 11. In chapter 16, it says seven angels pour out seven vile judgments on the face of the earth. Angels, good angels and evil angels. In chapter 12, there's a fight in the heavenlies between the good angels under the leadership of Michael the archangel and Satan and all of his evil angels. The word angel used 81 times because as in the first coming of Jesus Christ, angels were prevalent, so in the second coming, both good and evil angels will be prevalent as Jesus Christ comes back to the earth. Now, the book of Revelation will use apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature is simply, the word apocalyptic comes from apocalypsis, to means to reveal, to make known, to foretell, to prophesy. And what happens is, there's four books that are apocalyptic, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and Revelation. Those four books, the Lord will use a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. It's a literal symbol and a literal truth. And the Bible will interpret itself. You know what that's called? Inductive Bible study. Letting the Word of God interpret itself. Inductive Bible study is the best kind of Bible study. You don't need the commentary. You don't need a teacher all the time. If you study the Word of God and you're a serious student, the Word will interpret itself, and that's what apocalyptic literature does. Now, a teacher, God did raise up teachers, pastors, for the purpose of teaching, and that's what the ministry God has given to me. But let me show you how you can learn from just how I give you an example here of apocalyptic literature. Look at verse 1. John, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 12. John is on the Isle of Patmos. It's an isle island in the Aegean Sea, about 45 miles off to the coast of modern-day Turkey, and it's about uh, three miles wide, uh, six miles long, has 365 churches on it. It's a very interesting island, been out there a number of times. But John is on this isle on an afternoon, I think it was Sunday afternoon, look at verse 12, he said, and I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, notice, I saw seven golden candlesticks. Now, that's apocalyptic literature. He's using a symbol here. Look at verse 16. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Again, God using a symbol to communicate an absolute truth. How do you interpret apocalyptic literature? You keep reading the Word of God. In verse 12, seven golden candlesticks. In verse 16, seven stars in his right hand. Look at verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. In chapters 2 and 3, we're going to see there are messages to seven churches. You know the churches. You've read about them. And you'll notice something. At the beginning of every message, it says, and unto the angel at the church at Ephesus, unto the angel at the church at Smyrna, unto the angel of the church of Pergamos, unto the angel of the church of uh, uh, Thyatira, unto the angel of the church at Sardis, unto the angel of the church of Philadelphia, unto the angel of the church of Laodicea. Those are not pastors they're talking about. 
The word in the Greek is angelos, which means angel. It could be translated messenger. It is a couple of times, but it definitely is talking about angels. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, and I have a great great study out there on angels, a five-hour study. If you want to study something exciting, study my study on angels out there. But angels, the most used word in the book of Revelation, angels are going to be in the churches. 1 Corinthians 11, there's an angel or two right here in this church right now. That's what the Bible teaches. Angels in this church watching over to make certain we do what's right. Angels, a death, an angel, Luke 16, gathers you up and takes you into the heaven. You don't die alone. You die with a group of angels. Chapter 18 of Matthew, all of us have guardian angels. The little children have guardian angels, and their angel faces God on a daily basis reporting what he's done with that little child. Uh, It's amazing about angels. But angels play a key role here in the book of Revelation. So chapter 1 is the person of Jesus Christ, his power, the resurrection of Christ. Here in verse 18, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell and of death. Now, that gives us the authority that Jesus has for giving us prophecy. He resurrected from the dead, the only man to ever do it. That qualifies him to be the one who can give us prophecy. Look here in verse 19. After his resurrection, verse 19 we read, Write the things which thou have seen, and the things which are, and the things which must be hereafter. And that's an outline for the book of Revelation. The things thou hast seen would be chapter 1. The things which are, John wrote it, he was pastor of the church at Ephesus, that would be chapters 2 and 3. The things that which shall happen hereafter, that would be chapters 4 to 22. That's the book of Revelation. Now, without further ado, let me walk through for you the book of Revelation chronologically. You might remember what I told you about If you were here in Sunday school, we have these three items. This microphone stand, the pulpit, the microphone stand over there. These represent the three main events in the future as far as God is concerned. This one's the rapture of the church. That's chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Revelation. This is the rapture. Would you shout that word for me, please? I can't hear you. Come on, you do better than that. Everybody open your mouth. I'm going to have you come up here and do it. I don't care where you do it. You open it up and shout. What's the word? Oh, much, much better. All right. So the rapture is the next event on God's calendar of activities. After that, there's a seven-year period of time. How many years? What's this over here? How many years? And then chapter 19, verse 11, talks about Jesus getting on a white horse. We all get on white horses. We come back. That's called the return. What's it called? What's this over here? How many years right here? What's this right here? Thank you. Return. By the way, do we have any middle school kids in here? Raise your hand if you're a middle school kid. I hate middle school kids. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. They are so real. I had a pretty little middle school girl come up to me the other day. She said, Dr. DeYoung? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, when my cat died, did it go to heaven? I said, no, ma'am. She said, when my dog died, did it go to heaven? No, ma'am. She said, when animals die, Dr. DeYoung, do they go to heaven? I said, no, little girl. Can't you hear me? They irritate you. And then she looked up in her sweet, loving way, and she says, 
Okay, Dr. DeYoung, where are we going to get those white horses to come back on? <laughs> That's why I hate middle school kids. <laughs> By the way, I don't know, pastor's going to preach on that next Sunday, so be sure to be here. He'll tell you all about that. The rapture of the church is first, the seven-year period of time. We get on a white horse, that's the return. What's this over here? How many here is here? What's this right here? And then there's going to be a thousand-year period of here. This is chapter 20, verses 1 to 6. How many years? How many years over here? What's this right here? What's this over here? How many years right here? What's this right here? How many years right here? Come on, class, you don't know it unless you can't say it. All right, this is the great white throne judgment. Say that with me, the great white throne judgment. This is chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. After this, new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem, and that's chapters 21 and 22. Now, I'm going to walk through, using these different events, the book of Revelation. I'm going to do it in about three minutes. Now, let me tell you this. I started doing this when Jack Wurtson, he was the head of an organization called Word of Life, and Jack Wurtson asked me to teach the book of Revelation, not to adults, not to teenagers, but to little children. Little children have an attention span of about 38 seconds, and so I had to come up with something that would help them, and I did this, and I want to tell you something, I had five half-hour sessions with them and they could walk through the book of Revelation like I'm going to give to you. This is key for you to understand how Revelation unfolds, and this will help you start to study the book of Revelation. Let me do this. By the way, I found out that uh, if little kids can learn it, if I work hard with the adults, they can learn it too. So you pay attention because you're going to give it back to me. Here it is. book of Revelation presents Jesus Christ in three areas, his person, his power, and his program. You'll notice I'm using signs so you can give me his person, his power, and his program. In chapter 1 of the book of Revelation, we see Jesus in his person and in his power. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writes a letter to seven churches. Seven churches were alive, and John wrote the book in 95 AD. Seven churches have been alive throughout church history. Seven churches that are alive today. Now I move through these events. In chapter 4, Jesus shouts, archangel shouts, trumpet God sounds, we're cut up, and that's called the what? I can't hear you. Thank you. In chapter 5, a great choir of angels singing, Worthy is the Lamb. Chapter 5, verse 12 to be exact. In chapter 6, the beginning of three sets of seven judgments. There are seven, seven sealed judgments, seven trumpet judgments, and seven vile judgments. See, that's me pouring out a vial. In the first three and a half years, see, three fingers and a half. In the first three and a half years, these seven seal judgments take place. Also, in the first three and a half years, there'll be two witnesses that'll preach, and 144,000, you get that one? 144,000 Jews will be born again. That's 12,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of three and a half years, these two witnesses will be killed. They'll lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, at which time they miraculously were raised from the dead. Also, at the end of three and a half years, there'll be a fight in the heavenlies. You've got to imagine now, between the angel Michael, these are supposed to be wings, the angel Michael and Satan. At that time, Satan's cast out of the heavenlies. He never enters the heavenlies again, starts to fight the nation of Israel. In the last three and a half years of the tribulation period, the seven trumpet judgments take place and the seven vile judgments, culminating with the king, supposed to be a crown above my head, coming out of the east to join the Antichrist to fight the battle of Armageddon. That time we get on our white horses, he gets on his, we come back, that's called the what? I can't hear you. 
And then Satan is bound for 1,000 years. You and I rule and reign with Christ for 1,000 years. At the end of the 1,000 years, Satan is loose, captured again by God. Then say it with me, the great white throne judgment, at which time Jesus will be the judge. He'll send us those rejecting him in the lake of fire, which is the second death, then eternity future, new heavens, new earth, and new Jerusalem. Now that chronologically is the book of Revelation given to you in about three minutes. I'm going to do it one more time before I give you a test. I'm going to have you speak back to me, so you better be paying attention. This time, I'm going to pick up the speed just a little bit, okay? Watch me. Book of Revelation, Jesus Christ, three ages, the person power program. Chapter one of the book of Revelation, person power. Chapter two, writes a letter to seven churches. Seven churches alive and wrote the book, seven churches alive throughout church. Three. Chapter four, the rapture of the church. Chapter five, great prophet, he's going to wear this time. Chapter five, verse 12 to be exact. Chapter six, we're getting three sets of seven judgments. Seven seals, one, seven trumpets, one, twelve, five judgments. First three and a half years, the seven seals didn't take place. Also, the first three and a half years, two witnesses will preach. 144,000 that's 12,000 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of three and a half years, two witnesses will be killed in the streets of the roof for three and a half times, which time the next is raised from dead. Also, in the three and a half years, abide and fight in the heavens, Michael and Satan be cast out of me, start to fight the next division. In the last three and a half years, seven trumpets, seven bottoms, come to the kings, come to the east, join the Antichrist, fight the battle of Armageddon. We get on a white horse, come back, that's called the return. Satan is bound for 1,000 years. You and I rule and reign for 1,000 years. At the end of 1,000 years, Satan is loose, captured by God. Great white throne judgment take place, at which time Jesus Christ will be the judge. He'll send us those ridiculous like a fire, which is the second death, eternity, future, new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. That's the book of Revelation, less than a minute. Don't I deserve applause for that? I didn't do that to entertain you. I did it to teach you. Remember what I said this morning, everything I do on a platform has a purpose? You know what? That is simply a little teaching technique I used on you. You, when I went through that fast, should have seen yourself. You were zeroed in on what I was teaching. I think you might have been able to get it. Let me give it to you. Speak out to me. Book of Revelation presents Jesus Christ in three. It's his, and in his, and in his program. In chapter one, his person and power. Chapter two and three, he writes a letter to seven churches. Seven churches were alive and he wrote the book, Seven Churches Are Alive Today. In chapter four, the... In chapter 5, a great choir of angels singing worthy is the Lamb. Chapter 5, verse 12 to be exact. Chapter 6, the beginning of three sets of seven judgments. There are seven seals, seven, and seven. In the first three and a half years, the seven seal judgments take place. Also in the first three and a half years, two witnesses that preach, and 144,000 Jews are born again. That's 12,000 of the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of three and a half years, these two witnesses will be Lay in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half days, not years, they would stink, at which time they will rise from the dead. Also, at the end of three and a half years, there'll be a fight in the heavens between Michael and Satan, and the evil angels are cast out. In the last three and a half years, the seven trumpets and the seven culminating with the kings coming out of the east to join the Antichrist to fight the battle of, we get on a white horse, he gets on, we come back, that's called the... Return, and then Satan is for a, you're not ruling reign, for a thousand years. At the end of a thousand, Satan is loose, captured again by God. Then say it with me. The great white throne judgment. Jesus the judge sent us those rejected him in the lake of fire, the second death. Then eternity, future, new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. I hope that uh, this simple little teaching tool 
will be effective in your understanding chronologically. I just taught you revelation chronologically. Now you say, well, how will I ever use that? Well, I have materials that you could purchase will help you, but it's in your mind. And now the Holy Spirit of God, whose ministry it is to teach, will help you to understand that. It's so important you study revelation chronologically. In this walkthrough, there are two chapters I did not deal with. Chapters 17 and 18. Go to chapters 17 and 18, and now I come into focus on what we wanted to speak to you about this evening. Chapters 17 and 18. In chapter 17, we see the word Babylon used one time. In chapter 18, we see the word Babylon used three times. In chapter 17, we see unfolding a religiosity, a false religion. The word in chapter 17 is whore. It's used three times. And then the word woman in connection with a prostitute or a whore is used six times. So nine times it's talking about an unvirtuous woman. Remember, it's using apocalyptic literature. What is the opposite of a whore? A virtuous virgin woman. And who does Jesus Christ marry? God marries, God has Jesus marry the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, a chastened virgin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians. We are the pure virgin bride of Christ. The opposite of that would be a whore, a prostitute. And that's exactly what the text is talking about. Look here in chapter 17, verse 5. And upon her forehead, it's talking about the symbol that they see, was a name written, Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And so he's describing a false church. I'll get more into it in just a moment, but I want you to know chapter 17 is a false church that will be headquartered Look at verse 9, verse 9. And here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven hilled, or the seven heads, or seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. The woman is the false church. She sitteth on a seven-mountain city. In 95 AD, when John the Revelator wrote this book, the number one seven-hilled or mountain city in the world was Rome, Italy. That's where the false church will be headquartered in the city of Rome. This false church will have, for example, let's look at it, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit unto the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy. Well, the church is going to blaspheme God. That's what the Antichrist does. The word beast used eight times here in chapter 17 is referring to the Antichrist. Chapter 13, verse 1, the beast out of the sea, that is the Antichrist. Every time you see the word beast in the book of Revelation, it's the Antichrist. And so the Antichrist is controlling this false church headquartered in a city of Rome. And blasphemy is written all over her. Seven heads, that would be the seven mountains of the city of Rome. And then it had uh, 
ten horns. Now look at what ten horns is. Here again, we're using apocalyptic literature but letting the Bible interpret itself. Look at verse 12. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet but received power as kings one hour with the beast. The beast is the Antichrist. We studied about the ten horns this morning. That ten horns comes from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 7. That would be the revived Roman Empire. And so the revived Roman Empire will play a key role in this false church that headquartered in the city of Rome. And it is going to be a church that was established in Babylon, which the text says is the mother of all harlots, the mother of the whore. And we're going to go back to that, and let's look at it. Keep your finger here in chapter 17 of Revelation. We'll come back. Go over to Genesis, if you will, chapter 10. Genesis chapter, uh, well, chapter 11. Chapter 11. In chapter 10, we see the great-grandson of Noah is a man named Nimrod. Nimrod is an individual who establishes his kingdom. Chapter 10 and verse 10, notice. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and that is in the land of Shinar. See the last part of verse 10? Shinar is modern-day Iraq. What you saw on the video a few moments ago was the location of Babylon on the shores of the Euphrates River, and you saw the remains, the foundation, the base for the Tower of Babel. Look what it says here in verse 4 of chapter 11. And they said, go to, let us build us a city. Now set that aside for a moment. We'll come back to let us build us a city. But look at the rest of the verse. And a tower whose top may reach into heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. What did God told Noah in chapter 9? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Fill the earth with people. Repeople the earth. That's what he told Noah after the flood. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nimrod, his great-grandson, comes along, and what does he do? We're not going to repeople the earth. We're going to a place called Babel. We're going to build us a great city. Remember, we'll get back to that. And we're going to build a tower whose top may reach into heaven. I want you to know the last plane that place that Nimrod wanted to go was heaven. He was going against Jehovah God, Yahweh. God told him to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. He said, no way. We're going to build a great city here. And we're going to make us a name. Now, that doesn't mean they wanted to be the most popular. They were going to get another name for God. They didn't like Yahweh, used 8,000 times in the Scripture for the name of God. They didn't want that name. They wanted another name. How about Marduk? Marduk, the Babylonian god. He said, let us build us a tower whose top may reach into heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered upon the face of the earth. They wouldn't want to be popular. They wanted another name for God so they didn't have to be scattered upon the face of the earth. This was the beginning of religion, of a false religion, of a harlot religion, it says in chapter 17 and verse 5. Extra-biblical studies will give you this information. And I am quoting now from Dr. John Walford. He was the president of Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the most prestigious seminaries in the world, great on exegesis of the Word of God, great on the uh, languages Hebrew and Greek. Dr. Walford talked about two people that established a mother-son cult in Babylon some 4,500 years ago after the flood. 
Nimrod had a wife. Her name was Semiramis. And Nimrod and Semiramis had a son. His name was Tammuz. Both of these people are mentioned in the Bible. In Jeremiah chapter 7, can you get Jeremiah chapter 7 just a moment? Jeremiah chapter 7, a very interesting phrase is used and a command given to the prophet. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 18. Here's how they worship this lady. Her name is not mentioned here. Her title is mentioned here. Verse 18. And the children gather wood, and the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead the dough to make cakes to the queen of heaven. That's her title. Here in chapter 7, chapter 44, seven times her name is not mentioned. Her title is the queen of heaven. Look up here in verse 16. This is the command from God to Jeremiah. Therefore, pray not thou for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me, for I will not hear thee. He said, don't pray for this queen of heaven and the way they worship. You know how they worshiped? On a certain day, a special pagan holy day, they would make hot cross buns and they would serve the hot cross buns to everybody who participated. The mothers and the fathers would take hard-boiled eggs. This was in the Babylonian era, and Babylon, listen to me, its symbol was the egg according to Zechariah. They would take these eggs, hard-boiled eggs, paint them in beautiful colors, hide them in the woods, and give the children a little basket to let them go out and find the colored eggs in the woods. They did those on the pagan holy day, Ishtar. Sound familiar? And what does God say to Jeremiah? It's not my opinion. He said, don't pray for people that worship like that. Don't even pray for them. That's the queen of heaven. Can you get Ezekiel? Turn over. It's a couple pages over. Ezekiel chapter 8. In Ezekiel chapter 8, the Lord brings Ezekiel the prophet back from the Babylonian captivity into Jerusalem. He takes him into the temple. He sees all types of idolatrous portraits all over the wall. He takes him into the temple. Notice what he sees. Verse 14. Remember the son of the mother-son cult, Semiramis and Tammuz was his name. Notice what it says here, verse 14. Then he brought me into the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the scriptures. They were weeping for this son of the mother-son cult, Semiramis and Tammuz. That was the false church that was started in Babylon. That's what chapter 17, verse 5 is talking about. Babylon, the mother of all harlots, false churches. You know what happened with the fall of the Babylonian Empire, 539 B.C.? With the fall of the Babylonian Empire, the church had to move from Babylon to another location. Know where it moved? Pergamos. Pergamos. Oh, yes, it moved to Pergamos. That's that third of the seven churches in Revelation 2. Moved to Pergamos. Have you ever been to Pergamos? Let me tell you if you've never been there. That's the location where they started to deify the Roman emperors. I could take you right now to Pergamos. I've been there a number of times. I could show you engraved on the statues 
of these Roman emperors. They had a political title. You know what their political title was? Caesar. You didn't think all those guys were named Caesar, did you? That was their political title. Caesar means emperor. Do you know what their religious title was? Pontifus Maximus. It's right there engraved. They were deified. They became the head of the church. And they were called Pontifus Maximus, which in Latin means major keeper of the bridge. By the way, that was too long, so they shortened to Pontiff. And that was too long, so they shortened it to Pope. The Roman emperors, the Pope. Now, don't you dare, this is being recorded, don't you dare go out of here and say that Jimmy DeYoung just called the Catholic Church the false church. I didn't say that. I'm simply telling you what history records. I'm teaching you what the Bible says. I cannot exegete the scriptures and tell you that the Catholic Church is the false church. But I can tell you what chapter 17 says. Go back to chapter 17. We showed you it's going to be headquartered in a seven-hilled city called Rome, Italy. Look at verse 4. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness for fornication. You know what that's talking about? They're wearing scarlet and purple outfits. They have fish-shaped hats. They have a convent of virgins. They carry a cross made out of diamonds and pearls, a chalice full of blood. When this false mother-son cult moved from Babylon over to Pergamos, that's what they did. They wore scarlet-colored outfits and purple outfits, carried a chalice full of blood, a cross made out of diamonds and pearls, had a convent of virgins. And it was like that in Pergamos until 476 A.D., with the fall of the Roman Empire. And then they moved their headquarters for this mother-son cult to the seven-hilled city of Rome, Italy. And that's where it will be headquartered in the first three and a half years. The Antichrist rules over a false church. You got chapter 17 of Revelation? Look what happens in verse 16. At the midway point, and the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast... These shall hate the whore. The ten horns, that was the revived Roman Empire. They're going to hate the whore. Who's the whore? That's the church, the false church. They saw us on the beast. And these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. They're going to wipe out. At the midway point of the tribulation, they're going to wipe out this false church. They're going to wipe it out. Notice verse 17. Why did they do that? For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. Wow. God using evil world leaders to accomplish his will. Notice. And to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. God's prophecy will be fulfilled. We've come halfway through the tribulation period. A false church headquartered in the city of Rome wearing scarlet and purple outfits, carrying a chalice of blood, carrying a cross made out of diamonds and pearls, a false church in Rome, Italy. And at the end, he wipes it out. 
Where does Antichrist go? The beast, he's the one who's been charged. Where does he go? The Bible tells us in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, he goes to Jerusalem. He walks into the temple, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. He claims as he sits down in the Holy of Holies to be God. Isaiah 14, that's what Lucifer said. I will be worshiped in Jerusalem. He's in the temple in Jerusalem. The temple has to be up. I talked about that this morning. It'll be standing here. He's not going to stay in the temple, though. Chapter 13, remember the false prophet? He comes forth with an image of the beast, a statue of the Antichrist. He makes it talk and move, an inanimate object talking and moving. It's unbelievable, but it's the signs, wonders, and miracles of Satan. And the Antichrist will leave and go another place, and the false prophet makes the entire world worship the image of the beast. Where does Antichrist go? Chapter 18. Go to chapter 18, Revelation. Verse 1. Remember the false church has been destroyed by the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire. God put it in their hearts to do it. Now verse 1 of chapter 18. And after these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having a great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory, and he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen. The word Babylon is used in chapter 18 three times. The word city is used six times, nine times. It's talking about Babylon, and the word great is used eight times, the great city of Babylon. Babylon has never been destroyed. I showed you the Evidence of it produced by the New York Times. Babylon has not been destroyed. Babylon, in the last three and a half years, comes back to power, the headquarters for the Antichrist. If you'll spend time studying chapter 18, you will see it becomes the economic capital of the world. It talks about the merchants waxing rich as they have a partnership with Antichrist. Do you not remember chapter 13, verses 16 and 17 of Revelation? Remember it says if you're going to buy or sell, you're living in the tribulation period, you've got to have a mark on your forehead or the back of your hand. We talk about it as 666. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I don't know if it'll be 666. There'll be a mark up there, but I don't know if it's 6. The Bible doesn't really say that. It just uses that number. We get into it. We say that's what it is. It doesn't say it's a tattoo. It may even be a computer chip, but it doesn't say that. So don't speculate where the Bible is silent. But it will be an identification mark on the forehead of the back of the hand in order for people to buy or sell. And you might be saying, well, how in the world could Satan even make everybody put a mark on their forehead or the back of their hand to be able to buy or sell? I've got a suggestion. Why don't we have a global economic crisis. Hello? Which is what we're in right now. Do you know what G20 is getting ready to do? You know G20, the top 20 economies of the world? They are going to meet and put together a global economic structure. So there will be no more economic crisis. It's already been done in the European Union. 27 member states signed on. All of their ministers of finance, our economy, have already signed on. 
They're going to put together a one world economic structure. And thus, when they say, take a mark up here on the back of your hand if you want to buy or sell food. The merchants in chapter 18, it lays out what they are going to sell. They're going to be rich. And all of a sudden, Babylon is going to be destroyed. Do you not read those first two verses? Look. And after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having a great power and earth was lighted with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. It's fallen. Look down here in verse 10. Standing afar off for the fear of her torment. That's the merchants who are watching from afar saying, alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Look over here in verse 17. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. Look here in verse 19, in the last part of the verse. For in one hour is she made desolate. The prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah will be fulfilled. Babylon the great will be destroyed at the end of the seven-year tribulation period. Go back to chapter 16 of Revelation. This is the 21st of 21 judgments. It's the seventh vile judgment. You have six, seven trumpet judgments, seven seal judgments, seven vile judgments. Seven, seven, and six have been fulfilled. 20, here's number 21, verse 17. And the seventh angel poured out his vial on the, on the, in the air, and there was a great voice out of the temple with a, from heaven, from the throne saying, it is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake. Notice this earthquake. A great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth so mighty an earthquake and so great. The greatest earthquake to ever hit the earth. Friends, may I tell you, in the last year, we've had major earthquakes in Haiti, Chile, New Zealand, and Japan. All devastating earthquakes. Increasing almost every day. Setting the stage, Jesus said, Matthew 24, verse 7, Olivet Discourse. Here's one of the signs of my coming, earthquakes in divers places. A great earthquake, chapter 6, the sixth seal judgment in the book of Revelation. Another earthquake, chapter 9, throughout the tribulation, an earthquake happening almost every other day until this great earthquake, like an earthquake that had never touched the face of the earth. And look what it's used for. And the great city, verse 19, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came into remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. What did Babylon do to deserve the wrath of God like this? Chapter 50 of Jeremiah, verse 28, chapter 51, verse 11 says, Babylon destroyed the temple. Have you never read 2 Chronicles 36? Nebuchadnezzar on his third wave into Babylon devastates the city, destroys the temple, takes the implements back into Babylon, puts them in his temple. That's what his grandson Belshazzar was drinking out of the, the night the Babylonian Empire fell, chapter 5 of Daniel. And God said, 
I'm going to wipe you out. You're going to be as Sodom and Gomorrah as if you have never been. Babylon, Iraq of today, the headquarters for the Antichrist, will be wiped out in one hour. If you keep reading chapter 16, you'll see hailstone, the weight of a talent. The average weight of a talent is approximately 75 pounds. At lunch today, they were telling me about the hailstorm you just had that destroyed roofs and siding. And those were little hailstones. These are hailstone, 75 pounds in weight. Babylon, the greatest earthquake wiped out in one hour. And then Jesus steps back on the Mount of Olives. That's the last thing that happens in this seven-year period of time. Do you ever wonder why the United States military has been in Iraq? I believe that was God's plan. Maybe you're not aware of it, but Saddam Hussein, before the Gulf crisis, had put together a seven million man army. Seven million soldiers. Every one of them had weapons training. 2,000 had volunteered to be suicide bombers. Saddam's stated purpose was to go to Jerusalem, liberate Jerusalem, and give it to the Palestinian people. May I tell you something? Judy and I were in Jerusalem for the 39 Scud attacks in the first Gulf crisis, January of 1991. We put on our gas mask 39 times and went into a sealed room. We knew that Saddam meant business. Ariel Sharon was the prime minister. He put the Israeli military on high alert because Saddam said he was coming, and we believed it. I don't care what you think about the war in Iraq. It doesn't bother me at all. Whatever you think, it doesn't matter. I don't care what you think about George W. Bush, but I believe. Do you remember Revelation 17, 17? God put in the heart of world leaders to accomplish his will. Saddam was going to Jerusalem. The Bible in no location says that Iraq will invade Jerusalem. So that prophetic scenario couldn't happen. You know what I think did happen? Now, I wasn't there, so I'm just supposing but here's what I supposed happened. God in heaven looks down at Saddam going to Jerusalem. And he says, I didn't write that. Saddam can't go to Jerusalem. Who does he think he is? About that time, and I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. About that time, I believe Jesus walked up and said, Father, what are you going to do about Saddam? I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure. But I think God the Father looked down and said, I got an idea, Jesus. What are you going to do, Father? I think I'll get me a cowboy and go over there and get that little weasel down in that hole. 
Now, I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure that that's what happened. Let me tell you something, folks. Chapter 17, verse 17 is an unbelievable principle. God will use world leaders to accomplish his will. And I believe God used the United States military to go in and take out Saddam Hussein. You say, well, what about those weapons of mass destruction? They never found them. You want to know something? Saddam gave the order to kill 350,000 people. How many people do you have to kill before you're a weapon of mass destruction? Saddam was the weapon of mass destruction. They shut him down. So don't talk to me about weapons of mass destruction. Besides, the Israeli intelligence community, the Mossad, saw what happened. And those aircraft out of Iraq landed in Damascus, and they took the weapons out in the Bekaa Valley. That's another story for another time. I'm simply telling you, Saddam had to be taken out. He was taken out. Why? Because Babylon has to come to power. Do you hear what the man said? We're going to see a lot of visitors in Babylon. Isn't that an interesting statement? Benjamin Netanyahu says that Iraq is putting in a state-of-the-art, cutting-edge telecommunication system. Netanyahu's a graduate of MIT with a PhD. He said Iraq will be the Silicon Valley of the Middle East. Do you know what petroleum experts say? They say that in 2015, oil will run out in Saudi Arabia and Iran. What's the third major source of oil in the world? Iraq. Underneath the ground in Iraq, the largest oil source in all of the world, they've only touched 2% of it. They got to get it out. Iraq will become the richest nation of the world. Have you ever heard of Dubai? Dubai will look like a backwater town compared to Babylon when the Antichrist moves in. What did I tell you? It's wiped out. Jesus steps back on earth. That's how close we are. Never in the history of the world has it been just like this. Never. We're alive at the time when the stage is set, every actor in place, curtain about to go up on the last act of the drama. It happens, Jesus comes back. But for all of this to take place, the false church in Rome, the economic capital in Babylon, before those two things happen, there's one thing that must happen. One thing. And we leave this place going into the heavenlies. And all you ladies trying to jump up and get a head start, sit there and relax. You're not going to get a head start. We all go together. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm trying to show you again how quick 
and how surprising it will be. But should you be surprised? We studied the text, which tells us this is how it'll be. We're here. It happens, Christ comes. That's how close we are. What do you do with that? Father, thank you for this awesome book. A book, an awesome book, that is amazing, accurate, authoritative, and absolute. And it lays out for us exactly what the Word of God tells us will happen. We can see all of this coming to pass in our world today. John the Revelator wrote this 2,000 years ago, inspired of the Holy Spirit of God. We see many of the prophecies being fulfilled are at that point of fulfillment. Help us as the church to recognize where we are in your time. Daniel the prophet, when he read your word and knew where he was in your time, fell upon his face, Daniel 9, confessed his sins, prayed for his people, asked the Lord to give him more. We're here. How do you deal with it? If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I wouldn't dare walk out of this building. You may not understand everything I said about Bible prophecy. It may be a bit confusing. But I can guarantee you this. I'm sure you got the bottom line. Jesus is coming. It could be soon. Even tonight. And so, Father, I pray for everybody in this building. They might know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's preparation. It must be made before the rapture. And you might be thinking, well, I don't know if I'm prepared or not. What do you do to be prepared? Simple as ABC. I said it this morning. You admit you're a sinner, not to pastor or myself. We're both sinners. You admit it to a pure, perfect, holy God. You then believe in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came, he died to take away our sins. But then he resurrected from the dead to prove he was the one qualified to take away our sins. You've got to believe that. And you've got to call upon him. In childlike faith, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Three little short word phrases will help you prepare. One of them is, Jesus, I'm a sinner. That's admitting. Jesus, you save sinners. That's believing. And Jesus, save me now. That's calling upon him. Do you hear those phrases? If you're here, not sure that you're saved, not sure that you'll go in the rapture if it did happen today or tonight, 
Would you pray silently those little phrases? Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, you save sinners. Jesus, save me right now. Do you pray those thoughts? If you did, may I have the privilege of thanking the Lord for what you've done? I'm not a mind reader. I can't read your mind to see what you've done. But if you've asked Christ to save you tonight, would you just, by slipping up your hand, say, Jimmy, pray for me. I did that tonight. Anybody in the building, slip your hand up. Pray for me, Jimmy. I asked Christ to save me tonight. Anybody at all, raise your hand. Okay, let me ask you one other thing before we close. John the Revelator, at the end of his book, Revelation, he offers a prayer. You know what that prayer was? Even so come, Lord Jesus. Could you pray that prayer tonight? We've been studying and focusing all day on Bible prophecy. Could you pray that prayer even so come, Lord Jesus. What it would mean is you're prepared. You're living pure. And you're productive as you await. Oh, maybe you're not there right now. But maybe you want to be. Understanding the times in which we're living. I ask you to do me a favor. Nobody looking, please. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. If you're in this building and your prayer would be like John who said, even so come, Lord Jesus, you would love to see him. You could pray that prayer tonight. Nobody looking. Would you just stand up right where you are? All over the room, my prayer, even so come, Lord Jesus. Nobody looking. This is private. This is not for show. I want Jesus to come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Nobody looking, please. Okay, do me a favor so that we do not know who stood or did not stand. Everybody sit back down, please. Father, you have seen these who by standing up have indicated with their heart they want Jesus to come. Like John who prayed, even so come, Lord Jesus. That's my prayer. That's pastor's prayer. We would love to see you, Jesus. But help us to be pure and productive until you do come. In thy precious name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Pastor. I like that prayer, pure and productive as we wait. You know, I'm ready for Jesus to come back, but the only thing that breaks my heart is I know people that aren't. I have friends that aren't ready. And so there's days when I think, you know, Jesus, you just need to wait. Um, we need to wait. But we need to be about the work of, of sharing Jesus Christ by the way we live our lives, um, by the words we speak. 
you know, by our testimony, but also inviting people to accept Jesus Christ. And so I guess for me, that's what has challenged me more than anything else is, is um, being ready, but also having a passion for those people that aren't. And what am I doing about it? Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much. Um, this has been truly an incredible weekend. I appreciate it. Um, it was almost as good as going to Israel with you. <laughs> and by the way, if you if you have never been to Israel or if you've been there and you want to go again, Joshua Travel does an incredible job of taking you through um, through Israel and Jordan and teaching you what's over there. It is it is a life changing and talk to anybody that's been there. It is a life changing experience. Thank you.